Are we there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to a very special edition, live edition of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. And we are honoured this week to chair a debate between my usual co-host, Anthony Samaroff, hey. and a very special guest. Uh, we have Kyle Wagner, who's going to school us and present the case for minarchism. Uh, Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, uh, you're welcome. Tell, uh, first of all, tell us a bit about your own background and then just go straight into what your, your position is. All right, sounds good. Um, well, I was a uh, Ron Paul uh, delegate. I was a Ron Paul libertarian. That, that was sort of my introduction to libertarian thinking. I had always wanted less government, um, so I, I voted Republican. But I wasn't that into politics and I never really thought that hard about it. I just was like, these guys should be the small government party, you know, and Ron Paul really woke me up to the notion that they really weren't being that, you know, um, you know, I got became very anti-war. Uh, I had never really thought about the Iraq war that much. And then I realized, you know, what a mistake that had been and our, what a mistake our foreign policy was. So, um, you know, I, I basically became a uh, limited government libertarian at that point. Then um, after the Ron Paul 2012 campaign, I was reading a lot of Murray Rothbard um, because Ron Paul recommended him. I got involved in uh, reading stuff from the Mises Institute all the time, and I became an anarcho-capitalist. So I'm actually a, a revert, you would say. I went from minarchism to anarcho-capitalism and back to minarchism. Uh, last year, I was um, reading Mises, and it, was, it became very clear to me that he didn't agree with anarchism. Um, and so basically, I pitted Mises versus Rothbard, and um, I just came, I, I had to side with Mises. His arguments persuaded me that we do need a state to have capitalism, to have law and order. And so I, I switched to minarchism and then I became a very vocal uh, advocate against anarcho-capitalism. So I'm, I'm one of, uh, at least in America, on Facebook, one of the, mo the loudest voices against anarcho-capitalism for a couple of reasons. It's, it's not personal or anything. It's just, um, you know, really politically it kills us because uh, we're trying to win elections under uh, the Libertarian Party or as Libertarian Republicans and a lot of anarchists are saying, hey, don't vote, don't run for office, don't participate in the political process. And for a minarchist like me, we're trying to actually uh, win elections. We want to change our change the policies. We want to bring the troops home. We want to cut government spending. Um, so, you know, that's what we're trying to accomplish. And anarcho-capitalism ob obstructs that. Uh, it also doesn't sound good politically when we're, um, you know, saying, oh, we want to we want to abolish the military and we, you know, we hate the cops and all that. Like that stuff's just terrible for us politically. Like it just, it pisses people off and, and it makes them not like libertarians very much. So I've been trying to pull people toward minarchism to say, look, if, if you want change, you know, a lot of people like to do agorism, but we, we think political action is the right path to change. We want to run candidates. We want to win elections. We want to shrink the government to uh, its proper size, which uh, to us would be would be minarchism. So that's sort of how I got from my introduction to libertarianism to where I'm at now, which is, and, and I, I use minarchism and classical liberal interchangeably. Um, to me, they're the same thing. People debate that minarchism doesn't include roads or something, but, um, you know, basically that's, that's my introduction. So thank you. Thank you. So you would include the government being responsible for building roads, for example? Uh, I'm on the fence about it. I can see like highways being toll funded, you know, and mm -hmm. private. The problem for me is sort of like local roads, neighborhood roads. I don't see how, um, you know, it makes sense to put tolls all throughout neighborhoods and things and side streets. It's really side streets. Um, you know, it's roads are communally used sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I could see other logistical problems with private roads. Like if you, you know, how are you going to keep people who didn't pay for their roads off of the roads? Um, you know, what happens if the private road owner, it's right outside my house, denies me access and I can't leave my house anymore? Um, I could see something like that happening where you have property rights issues of people getting landlocked because 
a private owner doesn't want to allow them access. So um, I just have some concerns with how it would all work logistically. I also think like other property that we think should be privatized, like the sky. I don't practically see how the sky could be privatized. I don't see how like oceans could be privatized. Um, so there's, diff I just, I see certain things where it makes sense to me that it would be publicly owned. And if you guys know Bastiat, you're familiar with mm -hmm. Bastiat? Oh, he's, a, he's a huge fan of a huge fan of Bastiat. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, and um, there's an essay in, his, in Bastiat collection where it's called Pro, um, public and private property where he says it's the role of government should be public safety and the administration of public property. So he actually adds roads, forests, rivers, waterways, um, you know, bays. So he, he, he does that as well. Uh, it's a huge jump, you know, it's a huge addition to state responsibilities because once you do public property, you're adding in, you know, roads are a huge expenditure, public parks are a huge expenditure. You're adding a lot of responsibility to the state, but uh, sometimes I'm just, you know, maybe local governments would own that instead of federal. You guys don't have that as much there as we do here, where we have a difference between federal and state and local governments and what falls under which jurisdiction. So um, that's that's an more of an issue here than there, I think. Okay, I hear you. I, I'm not so keen to get bogged down in whether uh, roads or something like that should be privatized and how they could be privatized uh, on a free market. I just wanted to clarify your position that you're not um, a classic minarchist rather than a classic liberal in the sense that you don't see the only roles of government as being courts, police and uh, military defense. Um, you, you see a larger role for government than that. So I just wanted to, to know exactly what your position was. And, but I'm correct, uh, would I be correct in saying that you think that the courts, the police and the military should be provided by the government? Uh, yes, that's that's correct. And, and lawmakers and prisons as well, just to clarify. It's sort of the coercive elements, the coercive aspects of government. Okay, so let's start with that um, uh, a question. For what reason are you a free marketeer rather than seeing a larger role for the state than you can? Lots of things are um, tipped to be non-excludable. Um, municipal water, uh, power, uh, electricity. There's lots of people who would love the electricity to be run by the government. Um, telephones maybe not so much anymore but in the past why the appetite why not an appetite for having those things run by the government well in general you know there's two types of management you have bureaucratic management and for-profit management in general uh, for-profit management is tends to be superior uh, it bureaucratic management tends to produce losses because they don't have the same incentives that for-profit has to uh, run efficiently, to run a profit. I mean, if you if you run a loss for an extended period of time, you can't stay in business. So for-profit tends to be a superior mode of, um, you know, management of mm -hmm. an operation or an enterprise like yes. that. And, you know, competition is great. It brings prices down. It gives people more options. Um, so I, I definitely prefer the free market for, um, you know, whenever possible. Um, the problem with the coercive elements of government is that I don't think that they can be privatized. Okay. Well, the interesting thing is that historically the courts were thought to be completely separate from the government and in fact above the government. It was only, you know, with the onset of the Industrial Revolution and things like that where we had um, the move from common law to, legi to legislature, le legislation and statutes and all the laws that we have, we, the, that we tend to have to follow that are passed by the legislators and government, that the, some of the courts, uh, we still have certain courts that are basically common law courts, but um, the government assimilated those institutions which e existed already. So how does that square with your view 
that those um, those coercive elements, as you put them, could not exist without government? Um, you know, I, I don't know that you can say they were above government. I mean, government to me is sort of the top of the line. If the courts, if the courts were the top, then they were the government. You know, I mean, that's the final, that's the top authority in society. Those courts, if they, you know, had power, I would have considered them to be governing bodies to the point that they can make laws that people have to obey. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the, key, the crux of the matter is you have to have authority, you have to have power to make rules for people, to tell them what to do. Even common law, which the name is kind of misleading, you, you probably know common law is case law. It comes from court decisions, but then that's binding. I mean, people have to um, follow those those uh, decisions. So, um, yeah, I, I just you're kind of saying that the courts and the government were separate, and now they've sort of been integrated. Uh, we we have a system with separation of powers where we try to. They're all kind of under the same government umbrella, though the the judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. So I'm not really sure, like. Where, where you're going with that as far as, uh, you know, what what you want. You want sep completely separate courts, but if they still had power, they wouldn't be really private. Well, okay, well, that, that certainly is a complicated question that would require a lot of unpacking. Uh, to pick up on something that you said a bit earlier, which I agree with, private ownership and and private might even be a misleading term because it suggests a corporation or a business but private ownership can be a cooperative it can be a community project there it can be a charity it can be a non-government organization that fulfills so similar functions to governments right we have arbitrary arbitration um institutions at the moment that run alongside government that people can take counsel from if they choose to do so. One of the reasons why you prefer private to public is because, as you said, it's efficient and it tends to be less costly to run. And you mentioned competition. I don't think that competition is the main element. The main element is the fact that the consumer has choice over which institution to use and because of that, it's actually the consumer that's going to choose the institution that they think uh, will do the best job. We exist in a situation where if someone was to intelligently design the law, no one in their right mind would design anything like the kind of law that we have. And even if you went back to America's system, I would not be surprised if before long, the size of the law started ratcheting up as legislators scrambled around to decide how to solve the problems by their, caused by their imperfect minds trying to come up with objective laws to govern uh, a whole series of unpredictable events that are um, that cannot be accounted for beforehand. What the free market would do in the case of law is create the opportunity for the best policies tried out on local levels and things like that to get exports, to get tried through the trial and error of people subscribing to various social contracts and things like that. The law would be optimized through trial and error the same way that your phone is optimized from year to year. There is no reason why we should have a system where someone needs to go to university for four or five years or more to understand the law. That's completely insane. And that would not happen where there competition in lawmaking because the most successful agencies would be the agencies that could make that information accessible and not create all these lucrative careers for lawyers and justices and legislators and politicians and lobbyists all right there's a couple issues with that um when i think of law i'm thinking of rules that apply to everyone within a certain area i don't see how mm -hmm. you can have uh conflicting overlapping laws i don't see how everybody can have their own personal law because we would all be following different rules 
So it, it, there has to be, I think, some uniformity. You're also making the assumption of a certain law before you even start, which is that you're going to have private property, you're going to have competition in lawmaking. That in and of itself is a, is a law that you're basically saying. So ANCAP sort of start with the position of we're going to have a free market private property order. And I don't think you can take that as a given. You know, some authority has to say okay. we're going to have a private property free market order. And so I, when you trace the thread back, you end up with, well, who says? Who says mm. we're going to do that? You know what I mean? You need to have political authority mm. to make these kinds of rules for society. So uh, that's why, you know, I think it comes back to having legislators to actually make those rules and then they apply to everyone within that area. Um, so one Sorry. thing would be consistent. Consistency, consistency of the rules across the area. The other thing would be having the actual authority to make those rules for everyone. Okay, I was, I was, I was just going to say, don't you have, couldn't you make a case that uh, even within the U.S. at the moment, you have varying state laws and everyone within those individual states has different laws and different ways of looking at those laws and different uh, statutes. So, you know, someone in Arizona is not, compelled by the same laws that they have in New York State. So, so there is still, even within a minarchist system, competing sets, okay, competing is maybe the wrong word, but there are different standards in law throughout yeah. the states, and yet somehow it still seems to work. Yeah, there, there are political boundaries separating their areas, so there's no overlap. You know when you're in Maryland, I'm in Maryland, you know when you're in that state, that's the laws that apply to you. So they're, they're, it's not like they're intermixed, like, you know, intertwined. It's not like my next door neighbor is under a different set of law than I am. You know, we're all under our state law, people in Arizona under their state law. So there's no overlap. That's important. Okay. The other thing is um, conflicts between levels of government. You know, like that can actually be a big problem when you have federal law in conflict with state law. We recently had an issue with that in Colorado where Colorado passed marijuana legalization and federally it's still illegal. So if the feds were to try to enforce their laws, uh, the two states would basically war because Colorado would defend the uh, marijuana growers with police force and the feds would try to crack down on them with police force. So if, if both states try to actually enforce their conflicting laws, you get a civil war if they push it that ex to that extreme. Now, what's ended up happening is the feds have acquiesced to Colorado law and said, OK, you know, we, we'll let the states decide. We won't we won't impose uh, our laws where the local sta um, state has voted for legalization. So the conflict has been avoided that way. Um, but but isn't, that, isn't that the way that the U.S., isn't that the way that you were set up initially, that the state law was sovereign uh, over federal law? Wasn't that the way it was initially meant to be? Yeah, it's really hard to make an upside-down pyramid. Um, the power tends to centralize up to the top. So, you know, I think in the Constitution, there's a, a line that, you know, uh, where there's a conflict, federal law, Trump state law or something like that. I should know it, but I don't I just saw it the other day, too. But, um, yeah, the, the point is um, it, it was set up to the, for the states to have more power. But over time, the power has centralized at the federal level. And I, that's what I would expect. I wouldn't it, it just doesn't make sense to me that you would have these small 50 smaller entities over top of the parent entity. To me, more of a pyramid structure makes sense, um, even though obviously we're not happy with the, the policies of the federal government. That's what we'd like to change, ideally. I hear you. Okay, so to pick up on something that you said, which is um, actually to dovetail from what I previously said, you mentioned the legislators will make the laws, right? My problem with that is legislators don't have the information to make good laws. Hayek demonstrated in his essay, The Uses of Information in Society, I believe it was called, that you know, you don't have, people don't have the information to centrally plan an economy because that is distributed through everyone in that economy. Um, and I think that you're, that assuming that people can, at the centre of society can choose the right laws is, is actually the utopian position, not the anarchist position. When you talk about um, having laws 
I, I understand your point of having laws limited to certain areas, and that seems to be important that everyone's under the same law. But that's only because that's what you, you know. That's what's recognisable to you. That only just shows the you know a, a limit um, of of uh, imagination. No, I don't mean that as an insult to you, but I mean we don't have the you know just the same way that the legislators don't have the imagination to come up with the right laws. In the same way, we maybe don't have the imagination to see what our society with um, voluntary societies of laws would look like. So for example, all of us would need to engage in social activity, um, whether it's to get our garbage disposal collected together or to provide us with some form of municipal water or electricity. Most people are going to need a mortgage. Most people are going to need a job. And when you enter into a contract to take your job or your mortgage or to collectively buy your water or trash disposal or electricity with other people to keep the costs down, you in the same contract can, uh, or those people will want you to uh, subscribe to certain codes of conduct. And you may be, um, you may be meant to, um, to um, subscribe to certain codes of conduct in your place of work and they might be able to fire you if you, if you are caught stealing. Uh, uh, you might be able to lo lose your house if that was in your mortgage contract. You might, they, they might blackball you or cut off your electricity. Hell, you could have signed um, a contract that says if you commit certain crimes, you're eligible for the death sentence. And therefore, you're, you, you've now volunteered so uh, beforehand, so no one can say it's a coercive power. I'd like you to, I'd like to give you a chance to come back because I have been talking for a while, but I also want to make sure we get a chance to discuss the role of, say, prisons and things like that in the kind of system that I'm describing. Um, yeah, sure. Well, you are an ANCAP, right? Well, philosophically, I'm an ANCAP. I'm an anarchist. I'd like to say voluntarist because I think that um, consent is the basis of morality. Um, for practical purposes, I'm a libertarian and I'm not a perfectionist, so I have nothing against people taking political action. I'm involved in the Scottish Libertarian Party, and if I can see an opportunity to reduce government, I'd certainly take it. But philosophically, I think the ideal would be, um, because governments have killed 500 million of each other's people in the last century, and almost as many of their own people, or maybe it's the other way around, that's nearly a billion people. I think if we can get rid of government, it would be a really fantastic thing to do. Well, I think, you know, I'm, I consider myself a capitalist. Uh, so sort of the main, the center of capitalism or the main pillar of capitalism is private ownership of the means of production. Um, yes. You know, so that would sort of be the, the, the first law that we would have to have as a given uh, in order to have a market economy, in order to have society organized as a free market economy, is private property, private ownership sure. of the means of production. So, um, you know, I, I think you, you need to have that in place beforehand, um, before you can do this, because what, what I really think anarchy is, is I think it's faction wars. And I think that when you have large groups of people and you have large groups that aren't on the same page, they maybe they're anti-capitalist, Maybe they're socialists, maybe they're social democrats, maybe they're nationalists, maybe they're narco-communists. You have all these different political factions and they all want different things. So I see them fighting over the rules of society and over land. And that's where I think a governing body comes into play because, you know, we force all of these people to respect life and property in a capitalist system. It's not voluntary to all of them. They don't want to live in that kind of society. They don't want to live in a market economy, you know, like, so... Yeah, it, so, it, so, it, so just to clear that up then, Kyle, sorry, you wouldn't, would you have a problem allowing uh, people to form their own commune and not live under that system and live it by choice, live in a sort of anarcho-socialist commune where they, where they make their own rules and own laws, you, you wouldn't, they would, how would you stop, are you prepared to use force to stop them from doing that? They would have to do it within the legal framework of capitalism, they would have to own that land and actually start the commune. They couldn't just take somebody else's land. They couldn't just go onto somebody's farm and take their farm away. Like, you know what I mean? They, they have to actually purchase the land through the system 
and then yeah i would pretty much leave them alone for a small commune yeah. but that's the, really not what the communism is communism is an entire society social order yeah, where it's public ownership of the means of production it's completely contrary to capitalism so we would really have to have a political boundary they'd have to have their own country with their own legal structure and legal system in order for that to work you know that we'd have to have separate countries basically it's just it's not like it can fit really inside of capitalism. What they have in mind is completely different from capitalism. So not so not just a separate state. It would have to be a separate country in your view. Yeah. Well, I use state and country sort of interchangeably a lot of times. Right. Um, but yeah, it would because it, it's a different legal structure. It's a different legal code. So it's it's almost like sports. Like you have um, football. You, you know. Um, well, what you say soccer. You have yeah. baseball. You guys are familiar with both of those. If you tried to play both of those games at the same time, overlapping, it would be a disaster because they have completely <laughs> different rules. The players would be bumping into each other. It would be a huge mess. So, like, you have to have some separation. It's like you guys can play socialism, communism over here. We can have capitalism over here. But there's a line. There's a dividing line separating yeah. those two social systems. Okay, I hear you. So, you, you can... There's a lot of examples of people coordinating um, different systems. I mean, I can pay online through PayPal, even though you use dollars and I use pounds. Uh, I don't think that there's any trouble with different organizations when it's in their self-interest, finding, you know, people share, tele different companies share telephone lines, share electricity wires and things like that. There's all where there's a will, there's a way. People will always find out how to coordinate. You know, I get if I go to if I go abroad, I might need to get an adapter to use the electricity there. But people will always find ways to coordinate different systems. That's why states even talk to one another. So I don't think that's as much of a problem as you as you do. Um, I think that you're falling into a left wing. Um, categorization of society when you're saying basically that government creates the market. Government creates the market by putting private property into place and there and there you go, government is creating the market. That uh, Left-wingers love to say that. That's not true. Markets existed before any states existed. When, I, when anyone has something and someone else has something and they trade, that is a market. Any time a voluntary exchange happens between two people, that's a market. Okay, people can come over and interfere and um, create violence and things like that, but that's why people create institutions to protect the private property. It just so happens that the, the, you know, the most successful mafia has won. And, you know, I think it was Lysander Spooner who said, you know, treason, treason doth never... I can't fucking say it. It's easy for you to say. Yeah, it's not easy for me to say. Treason doth never prosper, for if it prosper, none dare call it treason. Okay, so if any other agency tried to do what the government tried to do, they would be considered a mafia. And um, the state is the institution that uh, is allowed a de jure um, privilege of not acquiring property through the means that everyone else in society is required to acquire that property and have rights over that property. I think that is just, um, you know, a mental blip. It's irrational to say, well, here's, here's, here's the rest of society and you guys all need to like not hit each other and take each other's stuff. But here's this other institution and it's immoral for it not to do not to hit people and take their stuff. So um, I think that even absent of government, people would want to protect their property. They'd find ways to do that. And if you look at the government, it's pretty bad at doing it. And the smallest governments always end up being the largest government. Okay. Kyle? Yeah, I definitely would like to comment. Um, you know, we need to talk about where government comes from, you know, like, a lot of ANCAPs or anarchists think that it's just a gang that took over. Uh, government actually gets its power from the people, from the support of the majority of people living in that area. Like myself, I support government, so like that makes it more powerful because I'm consenting or, or supporting it. 
And, and so it actually is like a, a manifestation of the public's will, the majority's will. Obviously, there's some people that don't like it. Um, but when you have a government like ours, like we have a, a pretty big social welfare state, that's because a lot of our population are social Democrats. You know, they actually want this institution. It doesn't have a gun to their heads. They're voting for it. You know, they want it. They want the handouts. Um, they want the, the entitlement programs. They want the public schools. So it's, it's a reflection of the prevailing attitudes of society. It's not just some gang that took over. You can't compare it to the mafia or something like that because, you know, it, it is kind of like a protection racket the same way a mafia works, which is extorting money from, you know, the people in that area for protection. But in the case of the government, it's uh, actually a, a communal defense. It's actually supported by the people to be that defense against uh, villains in society and villains outside of society, like uh, foreign armies or things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a social institution. It's created when a group of people get together, they can't agree on things, they fight, they want a governing body to settle, to make some rules. And, you know, you're gonna need a justice system. You're just gonna need that. There's gonna be criminals in the world. They need to be arrested against their will. They need to be put in jail where they can't hurt anybody. So, you know, and there's, and there's outside threats, there's attacking armies. So, you know, we form a common defense against those. And that's sort of where it comes from. It's not just some highway gang that took over. Uh, I think that's actually, that's a, um, I'm not sure that your account of how government came into being is historically accurate at all. I think that uh, governments came to being when some people said that they were gods or the descendants of gods, and then you had a monarchy and they were the people who had the weapons at the time. And then, you know, after a while, people wouldn't stand for that. So they demanded a say in this, the system and they got the vote. Now, when you say, oh, people voluntarily consent to the system. Well, look, you know, it's very easy to voluntary, voluntarily consent when if you choose not to, uh, someone's going to come to your door with a gun and throw you in a cage with murderers and rapists. Uh, what's more, you know, if, uh, if, McDonald's had a monopoly on the education of children and, and uh, no one else was allowed to educate children apart from McDonald's, I don't think you'd see very many Burger Kings around and I think most people would be big fans of McDonald's as well. The governments control the schools, they control the account of history and uh, the account of history they give is very favorable to government. So people are indoctrinated by the government into uh, supporting government. And even thinking that radical, that it's a radical position to want more government. You know, lots of people on the far left call themselves radicals. Um, the government is held up as a threat of force. Whenever there's a threat of force, you can pretty much uh, be pretty sure that um, people don't want it. You know, the reason why they have oppressive regimes and uh, Arabic countries is maybe because most people don't want that kind of uh, that kind of law. Uh, if they did, they wouldn't have to have an oppressive regime because the people would go away, go along with what they say anyway. And sorry to go on so long, Kyle, but the other thing I wanted to pick up on is that you said, um, "Damn it!" <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I'll I'll, I'll well, circle. No, 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 no. I remember what it was. Basically, I think you're committing a fallacy because you said people want. People will want a justice system and so forth. Uh, therefore, government. I don't disagree with you. Of course, people want a justice system. Other, if, uh, you know, but you're assuming that if the government does it, it doesn't get done. And that's exactly the same kind of arguments that statists who are for big government make for anything that the government does. Oh, if the government doesn't provide healthcare, it just doesn't get done. Or if the government doesn't provide welfare, then you know the poor will starve in the streets. So I don't think it's a sufficient argument to say people want a justice system, therefore we need government. There's more than one way to skin a cat. And the justice system that we have is not just. And people get put on um, long sentences for putting harmful substances in their body or for doing nothing when they have to plea bargain they need to make a plea bargain because they've been threatened you know that all of the advancements that have made people safer locks alarms uh, electronic surveillance systems have not come out of the government they've come out of a free market the best a government can do is to react after the fact but in a uh, 
In a free society, the, yeah, we'll wind it up. In a free society, the emphasis would be on stopping those things from happening in the first place by keeping, uh, by having the correct incentives rather than reacting after the fact. Thank you for your patience. Okay, okay, a lot of points to cover there, but do your best. <laughs> All right, I, I do want to say, you know, I support private schools. I think mm -hmm. education is one thing that can be provided by the market. Um, with like McDonald's, you use an example of McDonald's and competition, but government is a coercive entity. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's police uh, arresting people, it's throwing them in jails. Uh, the problem with having competition in that is you're going to have conflicts over how that force should be applied. So my agents may not agree with your agents, may not agree with um, Tom's agents. So you have a lot of inconsistency and you actually have these, it's just private interests fighting. That's what you have. That's why it has to be a monopoly be because if it's, not, be let him, let him finish. if it's Go not on. a monopoly on violence, then you, you get um, you get private wars basically or faction wars. Okay, I don't think so. I think that people are going to anticipate the kind of problems that you uh, propose, and there would be arbitrators to uh, so. So different factions, as you put it, don't want to go to war. It's wasteful. It takes too much money. People might die. Don't people don't want to risk their lives? So what they would do is they would pre-arrange uh, arbitration uh, in case conflicts arise, so they can go to a third party or a fourth party, and and they would have pre-agreed that the um, that the arbitration is. They would have pre-committed to that arbitration. So you don't react to crisis when they come about. That is the problem with government, right? You've got, you say, put people in jail and things like that. Yeah, who knows what the correct sentence is for any crime? That's completely arbitrary. The only way to come up with a fair and just um uh, a fair and just system of justice is to have people try different things out and find out. Maybe some people want to contract a very punitive policy where if you know you, you steal, you get your hands cut off. Maybe other people think that's completely inhumane and they would, they would not be part of networks that chose that kind of thing and they want to re rehabilitate criminals. Well, we don't know which one of those works best. And the only way that we could ever find out which one was works best is not through central planning, but through the beauty of the free market. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, like, well, like, take like a carjacker or something like that. I mean, I don't want to yeah. like go to voluntary arbitration with that guy. That guy's a criminal, sure. you know. He just needs to be arrested and thrown in jail because he's a bad guy. So, mm -hmm. like, it's not always, like, kumbaya, voluntary kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Like, a lot of times it's just, like, you got to crack down on people because, you know, they raped, they murdered, they set a sure. building on fire, they did some horrible act, and that's why, you know, you, yeah. we need you, to just punish them. Okay, I hear what you're saying, and you're now the central planner that knows what is the correct way to deal with criminals. I would argue that you don't, and neither do I. First of all, I'm not saying that you would go to um, you would go to voluntary uh, arbitration with someone that carjacked you. Absolutely not. What I would mean is, if he was part of different social agreements than you, then your company and his company would go to arbitration. But you're quite right. Uh, if you know the best thing to do with a carjacker might just be to throw his ass in jail. But in in order to be part of society at all. If we were assuming no government, that person would have had to already be subject to co uh, contracts which would say what the consequences of him doing something like carjacking would be. And that might be he goes to jail. That might be he has to work and pay, uh, you know, he has to work incarcerated and pay you reparations. Um, we, we really, really don't know what the best solution to that problem is. But I do trust that. Um, through the trial and error process um, of having people voluntarily contract different systems of law, the best systems of law would prevail over time and we would know the right consequences for the right crimes, which we don't know. You know, the same way that we don't know how to centrally plan an economy, we don't really know what the best consequences for crimes are because we've not tried them all. Well, I, I think 
you know, we've tried a lot of different things. And, I, you know, I think that somebody ultimately has to decide what those consequences are. And it, it's just not practical to let everybody kind of sign their own contract because people are born into pre-existing societies with pre-existing rules. Like we can't just say, oh, let the carjacker say, oh, I, I'm allowed to carjack your car because I didn't sign any contract. You know, I'm not subject to those rules. No, that's not going to work. <laughs> like right, you, you can't just let the bank robber say, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, yeah, he lives in our society. The rules do apply to him. And, I'm, I'm uh, guessing, sorry, Kyle, I'm guessing that even in a, a, an anarchist uh, narco-capitalist society, the, the people who run the bank would have the right to shoot the guy who's trying to rob them. Uh, you would have the right to, to blow away the carjacker who's trying to, do you know what I mean? That, that would be an ingrained that's what you would call a natural right, the right to defend yourself and your property. That's, so, that's, vig that's vigilante justice. That's that's very dangerous because, you know, people are crazy. You know, maybe it's a guy and a guy, uh, some boy takes his daughter on a date at the prom and, you know, he decides to castrate the kid or something. Like, you can't just let people arbitrarily decide their own punishments. Do you, do you believe that people should be able to carry guns? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, what if someone breaks into your home? Is that vigilante justice? If you if you decide to take out your gun and defend your family? No, I, I think that's uh, to me legally that would be fair game. Like if somebody broke into sure. your house, they're pretty much asking for it at that point. But like the the famous example I think Rothbard uses is somebody somebody steals a piece of bubble gum from a store. Can the store owner then shoot the guy for stealing the bubble gum? I don't think so. I think that's just disproportionate, and I think that's unreasonable uh, to kill somebody over a piece of bubble gum. Okay, so uh, thank you um, for clarifying that point. What you're right. You're in, you're born into an existing social order, and I think this would be the social order that you would be born into in an ideal world. I do think that everyone would be subject to the law, and those who chose to not contract with anyone would not be able to buy anything or would not be able to um, have a mortgage or a job or anything. They might need to all live in one area that's just a black market where there would be street justice. Now that would not be appealing to the vast majority of people. That's why everyone would be under contract to follow the law, some form of law uh, that would prohibit them from violating people's person and property. It might regulate whether or not they can have an abortion or not. It might even regulate whether or not they're allowed to carry a gun, uh, you know, in some areas. Um, that is for, the, you know, the consensus that you think is channeled through the government. Uh, actually, I think that you find that if you actually look at the studies, voters have like next to no influence on government policy um, just as as such as voters what's more they have to choose between two package deals and you know only 25 26 percent of the country needs to vote to get a, a party in power so i'm not really sure that the government is a expression of the general will however i do think under the system that i am um, i'm advocating and i thank you for helping me clarify my thoughts on this uh you would see a greater expression of the general will than under a status system. You were you were kind of alluding to ostracism as that would uh, be only one possible consequence. Yeah, you would. The people would all have to know for every single individual if they were under contract. You know, somebody would come into your store, and you would have to almost do a background check to know if you were supposed to sell to them or whatever. Like, I just don't see it as being realistic. Um, that people would get into that much personal history and be like, oh, you know, you're not under my legal contract or what have you, so I can't do business with you. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't even know the names of like the last 50 people arrested in Baltimore City. Like, I just, I would have no idea who those people but, are. I wouldn't know to boycott them, basically. But Kyle, I mean, the, here's the thing: you're not, um, you're not projecting into the system. Um, we already have the technology to invent types of money that no one can steal, you know, electronically. But we don't have it. Why? Because the government issues the currency and they wouldn't be able to tax people if we use that money that you're not allowed to steal. It's very easy, you know, to, um, to have 
a card or or something. That's the thing. It's it's a very it's a very um, status mindset to say we need a solution. This is the solution. As you know, uh, from consumer products, um, we could never have dreamed before the free freedom of the slaves that we'd have these big combine harvesters and machines. No one really knows how inventive people get when they have to pit their ideas against other people's. People learn from other people's ideas and systems get improved by trial and error and self-reflection. That stops happening as soon as you have a legislator saying, here's the solution, it's a monistic solution, and there's, you know, there's no leeway for, for comparing different solutions. So I, I agree that what you're saying would be a problem if assuming ceteris paribus, assuming everything else, all other things being equal. But if you project into a society where people have massive incentives to solve these kinds of problems, I'm the, the combined genius of humanity is more imaginative than you or I or Tom or, or anyone listening to this, this could be. And, and that's, that's why I think that some of your, your problems might not be as big problems as you think they are. And I guess I am asking for you to take a bit of a leap of faith, but no more than we do when we say um, the free market should, um, you know, allow, allow for how safe your car or your, your, your plane should be rather than, rather than the government. Yeah, I mean, I'm all about free enterprise, but like I was saying, and it goes back to our our discussion earlier, I think that you need that framework of laws first to say it's going to be private property, and then that that what enables the market to um, flourish. And so, we but we've already kind of had that back and forth. Yeah, I think it's an important point. Yeah, I think I think that the you know it's the old putting the horse before the cart or putting the cart before the sure. horse. I don't know if you ever heard that expression. You yes, need yes. the rules set up first, and then you have free enterprise. I don't think it's free enterprise figures the rules out. So we have a disagreement over that. Yes, yes. Um, I think you've you've you've, you've uh, identified that conflict yeah. well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. And and what yeah. you know. Sorry, uh, one analogy I like to use for government is a hammer. It's like the hammer in your tool belt. You know, not every problem is a is a nail, but some problems are a nail, and you do need that force that can actually coerce, compel people uh, to follow the rules. So, you know, I, I really I'm concerned that your private entities are not going to be strong enough to do that if they face uh, significant resistance. Okay, thank you. Um, I think that you identified the main difference between our position very well. I think that we'll leave some time to take some uh, comments from our audience. I'd just like to wait one more point and um, then give you a chance to rebut it and then maybe we'll wrap up the debate. Thank you so much for joining us in the show. I just, I just think that the statist way of solving problems is always reacting to problems after the fact rather than preventing them. If we look um, at the, I think it's called the Crisis Management Center in Detroit, they stepped in to do a much better job of the government. So if they had uh, than the government of reducing crime, they, what they did was they went around the um, neighborhoods twice a day um, and actually checked all the houses. The police don't do that. And if there, were, there was a case where there were drug dealers in a big building and they, they made it unsafe, people called the police and the police said that they, they, they didn't go into that building, it was too dangerous. So the crisis management centre just put a note in the lobby on the notice board saying, dear uniformed, sorry, uniformed police officers, please do not enter this building as we have uh, undercover officers posing as drug dealers. All of a sudden, all the drug dealers got very suspicious of each other and they just basically moved out of the building, right? That's the kind of out-of-the-box thinking that we need, right? You could have security systems in your car um, to track down where your car is. People have them already and there's been many cases of people phoning up the police to um, pursue a car which was stolen that they had GPS to and the police did nothing. I actually think that if we are to live in um, 
peaceful and prosperous society. Yes, you do sometimes need the blunt object, the hammer, to react to crimes after they've been committed, but a much better approach is to identify what the causes what the causes of crimes are, what people are likely to be at risk of, of committing crimes, and intervene to um, uh, and intervene at an earlier stage. Uh, for example, another thing the crisis management centre did was if they saw someone looking suspicious, uh, they just basically go up to them in a friendly manner and uh, ask them if they could escort them away from the area. Usually that person was inebriated, whether on alcohol or drugs, and because they were treated kindly and with respect, uh, most of the time that person would be agreeable to be escorted out of the neighbourhood and they would solve problems before they ever happen. As you, well, you said that government's the hammer and when the only tool in the box is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I think that is the what the statist okay. position on criminal okay, justice Kyle, do you want like. Brief, do you want to answer that and then we'll go to some comments from, from some of our... Yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm familiar with Detroit Threat Management. Um, they actually work with police. If they have a real problem, they do call the police and they get the person arrested and put through the court system and put into prison. So they don't actually have that that power they can they're more like a security company and, and i'm fine with that like private security i think is a great thing um you know and, and i'm supportive of that but that's existing within a capitalist frame legal framework and there are restrictions on what those guys are allowed to do as far as using force you know detroit threat management can't lock somebody up they can't keep somebody in jail for 15 years or something like that there are very strict rules that apply to their use of force and then, like I said, they ultimately fall back to the, the actual, the, the public police, if there's somebody that needs to really be punished. So, um, you know, they definitely, they work together. It's, yes. it's not just like they can replace the police. Yeah, but they are compe they are, they're compelled to do so. They're compelled to work with the police. Uh, perhaps it would be better if they, they did have the authority to do those other things. Um, I'm, unless you, uh, I, I, I think that our, our listeners will make up their minds. Yeah. So unless okay, you, I've got, got a couple of comments here. Don't mind, guys. Um, uh, Oliver Westcott comments. Uh, I think self-defense is different to vigilante justice. Where there is an imminent threat, there is reason for immediate action without deferring to a justice system, private or state. Canadian libertarian uh, says. Uh, and uh, don't shoot the messenger here. Says minarchists love to keep cycling irrational contradictions in their head. They fail at every occasion when they try to put forward their outlandish quote, "I can limit the power of my deity." Close quote argument. I don't know if you want to comment on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the state is not God. That that's a big uh, you know. A lot of people really get into state worship, especially the nationalists. They start to think that. Uh, it can do everything. It can be everything. Uh, my mentality is it's it's a clumsy tool, but it's a necessary tool. Um, and it's not evil. I don't consider it evil because I don't consider punishing criminals, real criminals, to be evil. Uh, it certainly makes a lot of mistakes or what we would consider bad policies. Um, foreign policy, I think the drug war is a big mistake. You know, so it's not perfect, but it, it's I, I don't worship the state. I just... Uh, I understand that need for coercive force in certain situations. So, so, he, so here's here's my question to as a, a fellow minarchist, I believe I me, mean, that's that's my position. Um, you know, when they, when the, the founding fathers when they, they set up America, and it was set up as a constitutional republic, and they had all these rules and regulations to keep the beast of government under control and in check with a constitution. And yet, at the end of that, it's only it's taken a very short space of time for the U.S. government to get, in my view, out of control. Um, how are you going to bring that government back under control? It seems to be that, and I say this as a minute, because governments are cancer. No matter how much you try to contain it, no matter how much you try to constrict it, it just you said so yourself. Power. Sends, tends to centralize and it just keeps doing that it grows arms and legs until it gets bigger and just swallows its children how are you going to keep it under control yeah i'd, like, I'd love to comment on that um i think slavery was a big problem in the early founding that ended up splitting our country apart 
tearing our country apart. Uh, that was a big mistake that the founders made. Politically, they probably couldn't have outlawed slavery at that time because the southern states all relied on it economically. Um, but, you know, it just ended up being a very divisive issue. Um, and that was, uh, you know, not good. But the way the way you do it, the way you contain it is the same way that you shrink it from where it's at now, which is you have to become the majority. Uh, we as classical liberals, I'm trying to convince you guys what needs to be done so that you'll pull with me or we'll all pull together towards electing uh libertarian politicians or classical liberal politicians who believe in that specific defined role for government. And they pull, they pull away from socialism. They pull toward less government. Guys like Ron Paul, Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, even Rand to some extent. I mean, they want, they don't want this big government. And those are the kind of people that we need to support and get elected. And so basically it begins with trying to convince you guys that to, yeah. to work politically toward minarchism and well, that's, you know, we that, need to increase our numbers basically sorry but that, that's interesting because the last i heard from ron paul speaking uh, during the the trump election campaign and he was very reluctant to get drawn on who he was supporting he wouldn't even endorse uh um that gary johnson who wasn't that libertarian anyway in my view but no. uh, he would yeah he, he wouldn't even endorse gary johnson and it seemed to me that what Ron Paul was actually saying was, you know, we're we're messing around here with a system that is set up to, you know, if it, if voting changed anything, you wouldn't be allowed to do it. So better to concentrate on doing things that make government irrelevant. Get your kids out of state education. Um, you know, start looking at systems that can allow you to function without government interference. You know, and, and then and on this, I've kind of got a sympathy, sympathy with an anarchist point of view. Is it not better? I mean, is there not a case to be made that the whole system is set up to keep you from changing it? And the only way to do it is by non-political means, by economic means, and by setting up systems on your own that can subvert or sideline to government. To divest from government. Yeah, to divest from government. I think that's a huge mistake. I think that's the worst thing we can do. You know, you're leaving the, the state to social Democrats and to nationalists, and those guys are going to put their laws into place, and they're going to make us submit to their laws. You have to fight them politically. You have to you have to run against them and say, we don't want these ideas. We want our ideas. We want less government. You know, if you don't challenge them, if you don't run good campaigns, if you don't run for office, the people never hear your ideas, and they just vote for the same old crap over and over again. So I really think the Libertarian Party is on the right track. I agree with you with that Johnson wasn't an ideal candidate. I consider him very moderate. Um, I, I loved Ron Paul. I thought Ron Paul, if we could clone him, that would be wonderful. Okay. He, he was an ideal candidate. You know, so I want more Ron Pauls, not fewer. Okay. A couple of more questions here. Uh, one for you, Anthony. Uh, Buffo the art clown says, uh, and anarchists fail at every occasion when they try to put forth their outlandish quote, anarchist societies will never devolve into warlords who create a state anyway, unquote. Um, how do you respond to that one, Anthony? Um, well, there's not really an argument there, so I can't really respond to it. Okay, <laughs> okay. You do what you want to that one. Kaz Paul says, question for Kyle. Uh, welcome to the show, Kyle, good to hear from you again. If we can't trust people with absolute freedom, how can we trust them with even limited power? Kyle. You know, it's it's a myth that all people are bad. Not all people are bad. Uh, not all people are good. The idea is you want good people in government and you want bad people in jail. So, um, you know, you, at some point you have to choose people who uh, to lead. Uh, a, a human society has leaders and the way our system works, democracy works, people that want to do it. Uh, run for office, they make their case to the people, and then we choose the leaders of our society. So, you know, it. You, you, at some point, you got to trust somebody that they'll be honest. You make your judgment call about them. Like, you know, I thought Hillary was dishonest, but a lot of people, a lot of people didn't agree. But, um, you know. Well, I think obviously more people agreed than didn't because she didn't get elected. You know? And she so, didn't go to jail. And yeah. she's a bad person. <laughs> well, look, I just think that the incentive... <laughs> 
on that point, implicit in government will make the worst people rise to the top. It's the people who are willing to dish out public funds to special interest groups who are going to have the backing. So uh, the cream does not rise to the top of the game when government's concerned, only when the market's concerned. Okay, uh, the, the only other comment here that's Oliver Westcott again says, I think there is a better case for minarchism than democracy. I think democracy incentivizes the growth of the state, but he, he doesn't actually say what his, his case for minarchism is better than the, the case for democracy. Um, I'd, I'd just be into one, another question of one I'm just interested to know, uh, Kyle, is there any kind of faith-based base to your to your belief in a, in a minimist, minarchist government. I mean, are, are you are you a Christian, for example? Do you believe that you know that that old thing from the book that says uh, you know the king is there by by you know he, he gets into authority because God brings him to that place? I mean, I don't know. Do you have a faith-based sort of? Uh, no, no, no. My political uh, beliefs are based on utilitarianism, okay. which is the philosophy of you know what's actually going to work. Um, that's sort of where I, or what's going to work best for society. That's, that's what I ground my, my, uh, beliefs on. It's a utilitarian a philosophy. Position, utilitarianism. I mean, the idea that what's best for most of the people, most of the time. Yeah. Where does the individual stand in that? Equation? Well, it's, it's rule-based utilitarianism. So it's like, which, okay. which sort of general rules, uh, work the best. It, it's not just, uh, it's not a collectivist mentality where it's like the individual is meaningless. You know, I, I, I do want to talk real quickly about individualism and collectivism. Okay. Um, okay. Ayn Rand obviously was an extreme individualist. She came, she saw the Soviet Union and it pushed her so far to individualism. And that's actually, uh, hurt us in a lot of ways because she wrote, you know, the virtue of selfishness, and a lot of people look at us libertarians and they're like, you don't care about other people. You only care about yourselves. And so the collectivist mentality is uh, more familial, um, you know, and I think there's a middle ground there where we care about ourselves as individuals, but we also recognize that we're a part of a society. We're a part of a group. Our actions affect others. We rely on others to uh, help us and to survive. So, you know, it, it's sort of, Henry Hasley called it mutualism, not the political philosophy, but the middle ground between individualism and collectivism. And at this time, that's where I kind of stand as well. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, no man is an island. I'm not, you know, I can't do, I can't survive on my own. Like I need society to survive, but like I matter. Surely you choose which society you wish. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not part of, I don't see myself as part of society. I'm part of societies. There, there are many societies that I'm involved with and they're all voluntary. I suppose I can't choose my family, but then you could choose to divorce yourself from your family, I guess. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you go out, you, you, you conduct business in the, uh, with the local businesses, you interact with strangers all the time. Like, you know, you're just, you have neighbors that you may or may know or not know, but you live with people, you live around people, you're surrounded by people and, you know, your actions affect them and their actions affect you. So, uh, to, to is that say, not what we call rational self-interest then? Yeah. You, yeah. You have to take care. You have to look out for yourself. You can't let people walk all over you, but at the same time, be respectful of others. And that's where I think that that respect for other people is lost in that individualist message a lot of times. Okay, and I think that if it is lost in the message, it's a, in my opinion, it's a mischaracterization of an individualism because for me, the idea of individualism is that you interact with people on the basis of it be in, being on each of your self-interests. If I can quote Anne Rand, um, Go ahead. I'm, I'm in, allowing it. <laughs> in any compromise between in, uh, between food and poison, poison wins. I don't think there is any compromise between individualism and collectivism because individualism is the idea that your rights inhere in you as a human being and collectivism is the idea that the society grants you that right. As soon as society, as soon as people say that, well, society grants you one right or another, you're in a collectivist paradigm. So I, I, I consider myself an, a, a, an individualist. I very much care uh, about other people as well, 
And I don't really see that as conflicting with my identity as an individualist, but maybe this is just down to definitions. It would probably please you to know, Kyle, that we are actually involved in the political process here in Scotland. Um, Tam is the leader of the Scottish Libertarian Party, and I'm on the Constitutional Committee. Yeah. So, right. um, yeah, he's, so, a, he's, a, he's a fake anarchist. He's so going to get drummed out of the anarchist society. I, 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 yeah. I didn't. I never. I, I, I was an agorist, and I didn't think that I'd get involved in politics. But I met these lovely people, and they seduced me. But from my perspective, it's more about sharing ideas and getting them out. So, thank you for taking this opportunity to share your ideas with us. I bet we could do another hour, but if there's demand for that, I, I think we should uh, do it another time. Yeah, this was okay. great, guys. Thank you very much for having me on, and uh, I, and I definitely encourage your your political activity. I think uh, political action is the path forward. That's how we really, um, you know, get our ideas across to people. They have to hear it from somebody at a podium saying, this is how the direction we want for society. And if you take a minarchist platform, they'll really listen. They, anarchism mm -hmm. triggers the tribalism. They don't, sure. you know, they kind of are like, oh, no, this, you know, it's just too much. It's, it's, uh, it's against okay. the flag. It's against the military. And they just, they, they get defensive. But if you come in as a minarchist, they really want to hear some alternative ideas, especially if they're not happy. So... Thank you. Okay, Kyle, it's been absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show, and I hope you'll join us again in the future at some point. And oh. to you people listening at home, uh, after the fact, please leave us some comments, and um, and, and we'll, we'll see if we can get back to you and even pass them on to Kyle. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, good luck, guys. Thanks again. Cheers. Cheers.